Hi, I'm Afton. And I'm Anna. And this is Grit, a podcast on the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Join us in reclaiming what it means to be girls raised in the South. Mm-hmm. So let's get gritty. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Well, the feedback from the previous episode has been excellent. How did you feel? Um, a little bit of a vulnerability hangover. People I love put myself the tears. out there. And I, I mean, did you get feedback? I, well, I compared it to the QAnon episode, which was more commercially, commercially successful. But I think the emotional episode had more intense mm. connection to mm. it. Mostly from women. Mostly which, from young women who are really struggling. And yeah. so, yeah, thank you to everyone reached who reached out and, applauded Anna's vulnerability in the moment. I think it was it's it was a high note for for the pod after 3 <laughs> years. It it really I think it was the most emotional episode. There's going to be a clip of me crying <laughs> when I do something big in my life. <laughs> Played on a <laughs> well, on the, the right-wing <laughs> website. The Tennessee Star. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, well, so how's it been going? I haven't seen you in a while. I know. Um, it's been good. I got to see my parents and take a little bit of break from work for Labor Day. Oh, you went to a bougie resort. <laughs> mwah, 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 that's, mwah. that's a way to say it. It's oh. a place I grew up um, staying at, and they've kind of expanded and have a pool with a swim-up bar and all of that. It was, I'll just give a few highlights. Yeah, please um, do. I, it, I will say it was very safe. We took our precautions, had our own room, all of that. Like, we were separate from my parents for a lot of it, and we were outside most of the time. But we just had to. Like, we just had to take the risk. But I will say that on Saturday of Labor Day weekend, um, the pool started to get more and more, like, oh no. like oh saturated. No. And eventually they blew some whistles and got us all out because someone threw up in the pool from <laughs> from drinking too much. <laughs> I was like, I love that I'm in this like Dallas party culture right now. Like, so much threw up in this pool. Um, Brought you back to college. Yeah, so you're you're like bougie <laughs> resort. Like, it's not too bougie for someone to throw up in the pool. <laughs> but yeah, it was a it was a great time. Like, honestly, one of the best trips I've taken. Or maybe that's just what I think because I've been so isolated. <laughs> like, all I did was, like, It's like fly. you go to Dollywood four months from now, you're like, wow, this is magical. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really do feel, like, super refreshed from that. What about you? Let's see here. Well, I talked about Nug. The story aired, and uh, you're, you're hearing it first, Anna. So, apparently, WKRN's story populated into some type of news outlet that then pushes it, distributes it to other outlets. And guess where the story ended up? Where? Baton Rouge, Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nug, uh, please, if you return to Louisiana and do a drive through mm-hmm. through Baton Rouge, ask around. Oh, yeah, Nug. ask people if they've seen, if they've seen the story of Nug. <laughs> I think my favorite, uh, since the story aired, uh, I've... I've now driven in onto the street, I park and I'll see Nug and I'll scream, Movie Stop Paparazzi! <laughs> and then he just like looks at me and starts licks himself again. So <laughs> he's, you know, 
he doesn't care about all the fame. He he never has. Uh, Frankie, yeah, he's not gonna let it get to his head. Not gonna let it get to his head. Frankie, on the other hand, is mm-hmm. stepping he's a diva. up. Yeah, he's, he's just he's loving all the fame. And funny that I added, I made sure the subplot that Frankie and Nug were best friends. And then did you did you watch the? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. It's like oh, this is the new Nashville Milo and Otis. I'm like okay, first of all, no one thinks that besides you. After <laughs> second of all, like thank you for pushing that <laughs> into the neighborhood. So, yeah, it's been fun. Um, Then this weekend, I traveled to Kentucky in a pandemic to film my Indivisible groups there uh, with a cardboard cutout of Mitch McConnell. And my first stop was Paducah, Kentucky, which, for those of you who don't know, is in western Kentucky. It's a McConnell stronghold. And so, and they have this beautiful waterfront. It's actually called Four Rivers. Uh, the Indivisible group there is called Four Rivers. And it's southern Illinois, and I forget the other four states. But um, so I was down at the riverfront. You know, it was very windy. So I had the McConnell cut out. I'm like battling it on the street, like trying to get it stationary <laughs> so I could take some, some footage. And I look up to my right and it's the McCracken County Republican Party's headquarters they're, they're, and all of them have now come outside and I'm just looking at them and without even and, and at first I didn't see the sign that it was the the Republican County Party so I looked up and I said could y'all help me I need some help and they just folded their arms and looked at me and I'm sure they thought why is there a cardboard cutout of McConnell right here? And this, anyways, so it was. I had the best trip. I uh, thank you to all the group leaders who put up with me and the footage. Um, so I'm really excited. Uh, the video. There's going to be a teaser trailer to debut September 27th, and then a full fledged 10 to 15 minute documentary two weeks before the election. So, That's awesome. footage taken by moi. Um, and I will find it uh, personally satisfying if McConnell comes after me and or Nug or Frankie for a newfound fame um, or this documentary because I think it's going to be I, – I, I think what was really interesting going into it, I wanted to capture – you know, funny quips, right, that I could mm-hmm. create a compilation of and then, you know, like, people talking to the cardboard cutout because McConnell's never available. And it turned into... It turned into uh, a film about the rage and the upset and that these white women who started all these resistance groups in 2016, 2017, have spent four years organizing, dramatically changing their lifestyles uh, to accommodate their organizing, and we're 50, less than 50 days out from the election. And so I'm really excited. We'll be sure to, you know, promote it on, on the Grits channels. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's been good. Uh, all right. Well, okay, I have a question for you about... Oh. Um, McConnell, do you know his daughter? Isn't his daughter, like, an activist? So he, yeah, so his current wife is Elaine Chow, but prior to his marriage with Elaine Chow, he has, uh, he was married to a woman who I believe is a a progressive professor in the Northeast, and I think he has three daughters, and he's all estranged from all all four of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And during one of the shoots in Louisville, the women, the one of the women that I was filming, uh, she posted a picture of the cardboard cutout, and she said on her Facebook page, and she said, "If you had to say something to McConnell, uh, what would you say right now?" And someone commented that you've spent the last forty years of your career politicking, estranged from your daughters and your ex-wife. Like that's one one that was, you know, it was just a really sad. That's note. your legacy. Right. 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 Yeah. 
So, yeah, it's going to be, you know, the, the a poll came out today showing McGrath d- behind double digits. Uh, but, you know, it's it is what it is. Like our political system is broken. And, and here we are. Um, so with that being said, uh, we're we're excited uh, about this interview. I asked Anna if we could talk a little bit um, or about the um, September about September 11th as I subscribe to a podcast called Blowback uh, and it's excellent. It's absolutely excellent. And it revisits how there was, as Noam Chomsky refers to, manufactured consent around the Iraq war and the media bought into it and that there were weapons of mass destruction when really there weren't. Uh, and it's led to the destabilization of the Middle East. And so, um, I, I, as you, as you'll hear in the interview with Pratik, um, watching, you know, this remembrance propaganda of 9-11, which, yes, it was, you know, it was terrible, but we think of all the the atrocities that the U.S. has committed abroad and really bringing it home to what it was like for brown people in the United States post 9-11. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. Okay, well, we are here with uh, our special guest. Uh, last week, after Anna and I, uh, during our sob fest last week, which people really enjoyed, I think we'll talk a little <laughs> bit more about that later. Um, we are ga- we are gathered here today. Why do I always say that? I don't know. It's so weird. <laughs> we are not. Well, you and I are gathered here today. We're still in Anna's closet, but we have a special guest today, uh, Pratik Dash, who is a close friend of mine and an organizer in Tennessee. Um, and the reason we we reached out to him for this interview um, recently, Anna and I were talking about, uh, especially during nine eleven, or I guess nine eleven had just happened last week. And the response from a lot of our friends and just this this state of, you know, the United States of amnesia, where I think our generation in particular watched what was happening and we weren't part of the resistance during that time. And I think um, looking back and thinking about uh, folks our age who lived through uh, that period of time, especially as people of color, um, that they have really, really important stories to tell. Uh, Anna, did you want to add anything? No, I think that's—I pretty much want to come to this conversation as a listener. I was pretty young and, and isolated from it. So, um, yeah, I just, I'm just very curious to hear your experience, Pratik. Yeah, Pratik, take it away. Yeah, um, so thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate— um, you all wanting to hear my story and, and giving me an opportunity to share it. Uh, I really, I really cannot thank you all enough. Uh, 9-11 was, uh, a really, uh, crazy time, uh, as I'm sure the rest of the country knows. Um, but for me, I like to tell people that I went to sleep an American, uh, on the 11th and woke up a foreigner on the 12th. Um, I was in eighth grade when 9-11 happened. And um, just to add context, you know, my parents are both, uh, they are both immigrants from India. Um, my dad, uh, you know, came to New York for college. He went to Stony Brook University, um, went to school for engineering. Um, and then, you know, once he got his engineering degree, he um, went back to India, married my mom, brought her over. She was also an engineer, and they kind of traveled all across the country and uh, had me, and I was kind of 
uh, and I was an only child that moved with my family. We probably moved every two years or three years um, to different cities. Um, and we finally settled down in uh, in Franklin, Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, Williamson County, which, as uh, many people know, is a very wealthy county. But my parents actually... Um, you know, they, they have their home in Williamson County because they wanted me to go to um, good schools. Williamson County was rumored to have a really great education system, and they wanted me to be in the magnet program. But they actually owned a business uh, in Lewisburg, Tennessee, in Marshall County, um, which doesn't have the same sort of um, wealth uh, that that uh, Williamson County does. And so I kind of saw two different worlds um, you know, when through my life, because I would uh, go to school in Williamson County and then I would go and work at my parents' store in Marshall County. Even as, you know, when I was young, I would go down there and um, just I would do my homework there. I would um, have to clean up the floors and, and all kinds of things. And I saw these two different worlds. And so when I saw 9-11, when 9-11 happened, um, you know, I think the, the most sort of moving moment for me was that I remember about four or five days after, so the 14th or 15th, um, again, I'll just, I was in eighth grade. I think I was 13 or 14 years old. Um, I had never really given to a cause before. I didn't ever understand, um, you know, why people wanted to do that. What was the sense in that? But something inside me really wanted to, make a difference for the families of 9-11. And my school was raising money to send to the um, victims' families or to the first responders. To be honest, I really can't remember, but I just knew that I felt compelled at that young age to make a difference. And um, so I went to my parents and asked them if I could have some money to uh, help help those families and my, my parents gave me $20, which, you know, in 2001, if you're 13 years old or 14 years old, <laughs> you're, like, rich. Um, and I remember I remember being nervous holding that much money. I uh, had it in my pocket, and I would always just keep, like, touching my pocket, making sure it was there through the day. They were taking those donations during lunch. And so from 7.30 a.m. to noon, I just kept making sure that that money was still there, that I didn't drop it because I was going to make a difference for these families. And I walked into the cafeteria, um, and I remember the... I remember that the money was pretty sweaty because I had just, like, <laughs> kept holding it. Um, and... I walked up to that table where a parent was taking the money and all the kids were kind of giving their money and uh, other parents who were there were kind of giving money. And I remember, you know, the $20 bill was in my left hand and it was balled up. It was like basically a paper ball. And I just knew it was wrinkled as anything because I wanted to make sure that it was there. And I reached out to that lady and I asked her, I believe she was a mom or a volunteer or something. And I just, I remember reaching out to her. I didn't say anything. I just kind of reached out to her for her to grab. And I remember her taking my hand and it probably lasted 10 seconds, but it felt like a year. Just like I just felt frozen in time, but 
she took my hand and she pushed it back and she said, um, she said, sweetie, we don't, we don't take money from terrorists. And, um, and, and so it took that $20 and I put it back in my pocket and, um, I just walked away and I think a lot of kids heard what she had said. And I think kids, um, modeled their behavior based off of what grownups do and it led to a lot of uh, it lo- led to a lot of chain reactions. A lot of people started calling me terrorists. A lot of people um, started saying some pretty nasty things. Um, and I mean, I'm still a little emotional talking about mm-hmm. it. Like it's very, it was a very uh, traumatic experience for me. Um, and so, um, I remember going home. And I never told my parents. Mm. I didn't say a word to them. And I didn't tell them because my parents sacrificed so much to come to this country. They sacrificed um, They sacrificed their parents. Like, my grandparents still live in India, and they don't get to see them every day. And, you know, we didn't have Zoom and Skype and that kind of stuff. That wasn't around in 2001. Um and so they they sacrificed a lot so that I could go to a school that had better education. I wasn't going to go tell them that their sacrifice wasn't worth it because there was a mom that was being racist. Um, and I didn't say a word to anyone, but I do remember telling my grandfather, who was living in India at the time, uh, about it. And my grandfather is a writer. And he said, well, why don't you just write about it and see how that makes you feel that might help kind of get some emotions out i'm pretty sure my grandfather told my parents but um you know i still at that time uh you know i thought that my parents didn't know and so for a school project um i wrote an op-ed it was my first ever opinion piece and i was what 13 14 years old and i think it said like you know is is this land really free or like something like that something super activisty that i wish i had known was like uh badass and progressive like back then uh but i remember sending it in my teacher sent it in to the williamson am and it got published and um and then I started seeing a lot of support and a lot of people saying, hey, we got your back. We, you know, we, we really care for you. I remember the principal brought me in to, um, to, the, to, the, to his office to have me open letters to just make sure that there wasn't any hate mail. Wow. And um, there was a lot of letters addressed to me. And um, I think it really showed me the power of my story and, like, how powerful stories can be. And it, it really kind of taught me that – by sharing your story, you can shake things up. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of like my, my nine 11 experience. I think that it, it was kind of the introduction that got me into organizing that it was my first overt, like form of racism towards me. And, um, I don't think I knew racism existed until that moment. And I mean, 2001 Williamson County, just so you all know, like, there weren't many people of color there. Um, there's usually black and white and then there was me. And, uh, and so like, I think that, um, I think that that was sort of the first time that I, I realized that racism existed. Um, 
And it really shook me, and I kind of lean on that experience quite a bit with uh, the work that I do now. I uh, currently work for the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, um, and I do a lot of work organizing immigrants and refugees in the state of Tennessee. And I think a lot of it comes from this experience, because I don't want anyone to ever feel like I felt that day. Uh, and I really draw from that experience every day. Um, is this supposed to be a back and forth? I feel like I'm just No, talking. no, we, no, <laughs> Anna and I are, we're, we're captivated. No, keep, yeah. And so a quick question for you, um, and I want to, I want to unpack your story a little bit, but yeah. right now in this moment, you know, you and I are in coalition work with one another ahead of, you know, 50 days out, less than 50 days out from the election. When you, at this moment in time, when you see Tennesseans, remembering 9-11 like is that is it very triggering for you um i think that people just don't know the other sides of the story right i think that people forget about the ripple the ripple effects that 9-11 had on so many other people in the country right like that it created this kind of um cloak of fear of people who are brown i think that doesn't get uplifted enough um and and a lot of those lingering effects that happened what 19 years ago i mean they're still here today um and and i think that that just doesn't get uplifted enough i think triggered might be the wrong word but i think it's more like i just kind of um I think I kind of uh, just, I guess I'm a little disappointed in the opportunity. There's so many opportunities to uplift some really powerful stories uh, that can show where our country is broken and that there are there's potential to fix it. Um, and I remember mentioning sort of that um I mentioned that this is uh, I mentioned this kind of stuff. I like to bring up these sort of issues in spaces that uh, it may not be you may not expect it. So I'll give you all a good example. Something I like to do. I play flag football um, on Sundays and what I, it's obviously a big group of guys. And so sometimes what I'll do is we'll be in the huddle and they'll be like, Pratik, run a post route and this person run a whatever route. And sometimes I'll just be in the middle of the huddle and be like, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, um, has anyone done anything for women's rights lately? And I'll just like mention <laughs> it in the huddle. And, uh, and people, you know, all look at me funny and they're like, why? What's wrong with you? But you know what's happened is that because I've been doing that for about a year now um, when I play with these guys. And I'll tell you what, uh, the derogatory language that they used to have for women that they would say, oh, I'm going to go smash, whatever, whatever. You don't hear it anymore. They don't say wow. it anymore. And wow. Whether they don't, whether they're just not saying it on the field because I'm there, or whether they are, um, you know, truly changed or whatever. Like someone might, someone told me they were like, yeah, well, you know, they're just faking it, faking it in front of you. Well, if you fake things enough, you end up just doing it for real. You know, like everybody's on fake it till you make it mode. And so, um, I've been kind of like doing that with with. 9-11 a little bit, like different issues. And so, um, yeah, I just think that 
those those are the kind of stories that I wish were uplifted more, that people discussed more and just brought up, um, not not in like an aggressive way, but just brought up to remind folks that there was a huge ripple effect um, after 9-11. So, sorry, yeah. I was kind of all over the place. No, but, no, that was uh, perfect. I think... Um... And I'd love to hear from Anna, but you know my my experience, my intersection with the aftermath of 9/11 came when I was working at the UN in Switzerland, and I arrived at the apex of the refugee crisis, and suddenly I was thrown into this crisis that everyone at my professional workplace blamed the United States for, and so it was this this deep dive into, you know, what was the impact of 9-11 and, and why did it give permission for the U.S. government to invade Iraq and kill millions, you know, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and destabilize the entire Mid- Middle East, which led to the, you know, the effects in Syria. And so I just think that, you know, especially being from Tennessee, and I I, I know you know this, which is, it's like I, I had that worldview and that kind of global understanding of the implications of, of U.S. imperialism and the empire. Um, and I'm really grateful because it's led me to be very critical about the U.S. government and, and its policies. Yeah, I think that's like, I mean, wow, that's a way bigger perspective than what I had. I was just trying to like, <laughs> trying to get $20 out of a vending machine or whatever. Like, I'm just uh, trying to, I'm trying to be cool in school, in eighth grade. So, um, yeah, no, I, I also think like, I used, I think that's a, such a great point because af- even after eighth grade, like those sort of things like continued through high school. So like when I say kids like emulated those parents, it's not like they just told me, Oh, you know, you're a terrorist and whatever. Like I was physically beaten in school Mm -hmm. and I was ostracized all the way through high school and it messed with my identity. Like it shook me um, to the point where I came to, I came to a point where I was saying, so my name is Pratik in, in, um, in my native language, but I told everyone to call me product because I wanted to just mm. fit in and I wanted to be um, white. And that was before 9-11. Like I was doing that. And I, um, and I didn't like, I was just trying to find my identity and I just wasn't able to do so. Uh, and, and it just, this really messed with me a lot. I started calling myself a terrorist jokingly so that I can get out in front of all the white kids that were going to do it ahead of time. If I say the joke first and I self-deprecate myself first, then that will stop the bullies from going after me and maybe they will accept me. And I mm-hmm. fought with that all the way through high school. I went to high school in Williamson County, like all the way through high school. And it wasn't until college when I went to a little more of a diverse campus that I, um, I started to shift a little bit. Yeah. I just want to add that, you know, I am really thankful that you are sharing your personal experience and, and letting us see that trauma and, um, the effect it had on you just because, I think that oftentimes we're talking about policy and and we're not really grounding it in personal experience. And it definitely like seems to have had like continuing effects um, on your identity growing up and like your identity, like forming as a child, like someone else's 
racist afterthought mm. creates ripple effects that it, it comes out of like dehumanization and just mm. and how these narratives can build on themselves um you know there a lot of people want to see 9-11 as having a narrative of patriotism mm. and that's right. what i'm that's the only thing i saw on instagram basically on on the day of which made me makes me think that i should follow different people on instagram <laughs> um but but there is a narrative of trauma and fear and dehumanization that also came from 9-11 that I, that I think is really important to name. But it's also, I'm just really thankful that you were, that you are willing to open up and share that and, and kind of give the specifics of it, because I know that that's, you know, opening up a wound a little bit. And yeah, I appreciate yeah. you. I appreciate you saying that. And going back to your point, right? They like you always hear, like you always see, never forget, never forget. Like I remember mm-hmm. thinking to myself, "Yeah, I won't. Like I, I am not. <laughs> play, I this is not something I'm going to forget." What is like? I don't. I don't. I get where like the sentiment is coming from, but like no one's forgetting about 9-11. I don't understand that <laughs> slogan at all. Like, nobody's going to forget about it because it just hurt so many people. Um, and so I just think that's such a silly thing. I also want to add just one more point on this. I remember telling my community, my Indian community, once it sort of got out about this, that in my Indian community, what they sort of started saying was like, hey, well, why don't you, why don't you just tell them you're not Muslim? Like, why don't you just let them know you're not Muslim mm. and that you're raised Hindu, and then all the heat's going to get taken off of you. Just tell them you're not Muslim. And I remember even at the age of 14, I was kind of like, no, that's that's not the move. Like, you don't throw someone else under the bus mm-hmm. to take the heat off yeah. of you. I remember really wrestling with that. Um and I put that in my op-ed. I remember saying, like, it doesn't matter what religion I am. It doesn't matter um, where where I came from or where I was born. Um, this this sentiment and that woman pushed my money away because of the color of my skin. She didn't push it away because she wasn't thinking, oh, that boy's Hindu. Like, maybe I'll take his money. Like, she wasn't thinking any of that stuff. That did not cross her mind in any way, shape, or form. And so I wasn't going to just, like, put another community in in my line of fire in that moment um mm-hmm. and it's it's easier for me to say that uh, i think it's really easy for me to say that because i was born here i view this as my home i view this as you know i i am proud to be from this state i am proud to be tennessean all my cousins that live in different states are like what is wrong with you <laughs> who is proud to be who's like that proud to be from the south and i'm just like yo chicken and waffles y'all don't know what you're doing with your kale out in california screw y'all like i i'm really proud to be from here um and and i think that you know, those people who are giving me that advice, who are like my parents' age, who immigrated from this country you know, or from, from another country, they kind of view some of the racism and they view as some of the, the oppression that they felt as kind of a, a uh, immigration tax in a way, right? Like they mm-hmm. view themselves as outsiders. Um, I think it's taken a very long time for even my parents to fully accepted themselves as American. And it's taken a lot of convincing from me to do that. And so I think it's just like the message I want to get out there to anyone that's listening to this is that, you know, I think that there is a 
idea of a stereotypical American that we criticize um, a lot of anti-immigrant people of having, right? We are like, oh, you know, you view the American to be this white, whatever, blah, 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 person, white male who is like oppressing the country, whatever. Um, But I think like, you know, that culture permeates in immigrant community minds too sometimes. And so anyone that's listening to this, if you have an opportunity to remind another immigrant community member or a second generation community member that they are just as American and just as Tennessean and just as Nashvilleian or whatever city you're in as you are, please, I challenge you to jump on that. Just let them know. And I think that will help um, those sort of people share their story uh, the same way that I'm sharing mine. Oh, I'm over here. <laughs> Pratik, I just, I'm, I'm so grateful for you. And I, um, we've got like seven minutes left. Um, I, I would love to hear a little bit about your political, I know that was, you know, a lot of your story of self, but your <clears> political <throat> awakening. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think I remember you saying that you were taking a path of becoming an engineer or something. Yeah. And then, yeah. And I would, I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, definitely. So eighth grade happens, 9-11 happens. I write this op-ed and my parents say, whoa, that's really cute. You still need to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, because that is a path to success. And so I went through high school. I took all the STEM classes, chemistry, AP, bio. Like I was that. Not to mention my parents also owned a gas station in Lewisburg, Tennessee. Like we were feeding the stereotype machine. Like we were single-handedly like just making that happen. Um, and I went to, um, yeah, I went to, I went to college at Georgia Tech, biomedical engineering, like took that path. Um, and then my, my grandfather in India got really sick. Um, and so I was at a point in my life where I had to choose between like trying to continue my career or go to India and take care of my grandfather. And, um, you know. Southern, Southern ideal through and through family first, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I got on a plane, I flew to India and, uh, I thought I would stay there for probably about seven months or eight months. Um, and I ended up staying for a whole, I stayed for five years. Oh my Um, God. I didn't know that. Yeah. I stayed there for five years taking care of my grandfather. And, um, you think while I was there, I sort of, saw, I realized, you know, my grandfather struggled to apply for visas to come to the United States. And I didn't have, I I had a strong connection with my grandfather, just like via phone calls. Um, And when I could go see him in India, and I was very privileged enough that my parents made um, enough money that we could fly to India uh, once every few years so that I could build that uh, relationship with my grandfather. My grandfather wasn't able to come to the United States that often. I didn't understand why, you know, when you're seven years old and you're just like, why isn't grandpa on my birthday, you know? Um, and, and, you know, you can't explain to a seven-year-old, well, here's the visa process and it's difficult and blah, 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 blah. We have to sponsor him. And, um, and so when I went there, I realized that my grandfather had been trying to apply for visas and just the process was so difficult. It was very difficult. And uh, I think that, you know, I think that really kind of shifted my mind a little bit. And then um, I would I would come home every summer. Um, I would be in India for about nine months, come home every summer for about 
maybe eight weeks just to see my parents and then fly back to India again um, for, you know, another nine to nine to ten months. I figure my my math on the weeks there didn't add up, but y'all know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember, as I flew back, I um, met my my girlfriend now wife but my girlfriend was actually interning for Turk the organization that I currently work for but she was interning there and she said do you want to come to a Turk convention and learn about immigrant rights and in my head I was not thinking about caring about immigrant rights I was thinking about I want to make out with this girl (laughs) absolutely I will go to this thing and do whatever I need to do so that this summer fling can continue (laughs) Um, and I ended up going to this convention um, and it changed my whole world I uh, realized the systemic oppression that undocumented community members face every single day. I realized the attacks that refugees and Muslim communities face, especially in the state of Tennessee. Um, I realized that being an Indian American, how privileged I am. Like, I got a taste of racism after 9-11, but that is nothing compared to what a lot of the people that I met uh, deal with on a daily basis. And that changed everything for me. Um, I walked out of that convention. I shook hands with every single person that coincidentally was going to be my future coworker. Um, and a position opened up a few years later or a few months later. And in 2015, I applied uh, and I got the job. And I've, I've not looked back since. It has been the best decision of my life. Um, I like to tell my parents, I, I in, when I was in India, I got a master's in uh, computer science. And I like to tell my parents that I have the best backup degree in the world. If this organizing <laughs> thing doesn't work out, like I will, I've got a solid uh, fallback option. But um, plan A is working out really good for me right now. Yeah, you're very, you're very good at it. So uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't think you're going to have to fall back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I know. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll design a program that could stop racism. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> and combine the two. Well, and I just wish, like, our parents. I've, I've said this on the pod, but when I moved back from Europe um, after Trump was elected, my parents were totally beside themselves that I would move back to Tennessee um, and get, get involved in politics. And I just, I think. I would hope that our parents would look at us now and say, mm-hmm. God, I'm so thankful that they're here and they're making, you know, they're they're making good trouble and, and speaking truth to power. And uh, do you think your parents would say that now? I think my parents would say that now. I, at first, when they when I first started to do this job, they were like, what are you doing? Like, what <laughs> is this? What, what is this nonprofit business you're like messing with? And I remember because keeping in mind, like my parents path to quote unquote success for them, right, was literally profit. Like they had to come to this country. My dad came with less than $10 in his pocket. And so success was building an opportunity for me and and building wealth so that our family could survive. And, um, and so like, when I said nonprofit, that's like literally the opposite <laughs> path that my father took to like, build our lives here. So uh, yeah, 
there was definitely some questions uh, about why I decided to go that route. Um, but yeah, I think my parents understand it now. And I think like a lot of people ask me why Tennessee, like they're like, you know, Tennessee is got such a terrible political climate and, you know, there's just more racism in the South and, you know, why don't you leave? And, then, and, you know, it's kind of the same argument that, like, people are like, if you don't like it in this country or in this state, then, like, just get out, right? And I like to kind of compare that metaphor. Like, I like to compare it like this. If I'm living in a house and my roof has a leak, I'm not going to, like, leave my home, especially if I've lived there for 10 or 15 years. I'm not going to say, well, you know, screw it. It was uh, it was fun while it lasted, but I got that leak. I got to bounce. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fix the leak and try and fix my home and my house. And so I just don't under, I, I always like try to counter that argument with like, you can always try to make your home better. You can always try to make a place um, more welcoming and more inclusive uh, without just like bailing on it. Like, in fact, I wouldn't be loyal to my state and I wouldn't be a proud Tennessean. And I can't say I like chicken and waffles and proud to be Southern. If I'm just like, well, I'm leaving, I'm going to Cali or I'm going to New York. That's going to be better for me. Like, I'm not going to do that. No, this is my house. I'm going to make sure that my house looks good so that when people come by, they know that like, yo, Tennessee's dope. Like they're getting better. They're changing. So that's kind of like my my mentality on it. Well, um, Pratik, if folks want to find you on the interweb, how would they do that? And if they'd like to donate to Turk or find out more about Turk, how would they do that? Yeah, good question. So um, I am super I, – I, this is really bad, and maybe it's a good quality of an organizer and a bad quality of me drawing boundaries, um, but <laughs> I – Definitely would love for folks to follow um, follow Turk on Instagram and Facebook. So the handle is at TN Immigrant, or you can visit www.tnimmigrant.org. Um, donations are so helpful right now. And then we have our sister organization, which is called Turk Votes. So www.turkvotes.org. Um, we have some really cool events coming up very, um, very soon. And so we'd love to see you all at those events um and so just keep an eye on that follow us there and then my personal instagram is um at a dash of justice my full name is pratik dash thought it was a pretty clever clever <laughs> handle but um so at a d-a-s-h of justice and uh you'll see me with a power fist and so uh yeah definitely want to get all get all the followers and i'll follow you back uh i am i am shameless when it comes to building my social media profile <laughs> All right. Well, Pratik, thank you so much for your time. And I just, I adore you. And I, I'm so thankful. I, I think back to that moment in 2016 after the election. And I'm just so grateful that our paths crossed and that we're able to collaborate with one another. Definitely. Thank you all so much for having me. And um, yeah, I, I would love to come back again. So don't <laughs> let this be the only time. Let me know uh, when I can come back. I'd be down. All right. Sounds good. Bye, Pratik. Thank all you. Right, see Bye. What are you grateful for, Anna? <laughs> tell me the story. Tell me the, I always pause, like, so dramatically. I think you should tell the story of your okay, Kroger. So I have, as we mourn on my upcoming, what would have been oh my, my wedding weekend. It was this weekend. 
Which is probably why I'm on an emotional roller coaster oh, lately. Yeah, you didn't even say anything I'm when not. I walked in. It's fine. It's fine. I bought you. Okay. You don't need to buy me I anything. Know, Abden's the best gift giver. Thank you. She um, is so generous. But anyway, I, um, yeah, we're approaching what would have been our second <laughs> wedding weekend, which moving it the first time was like honestly so painful and just destabilizing. And because we were in April, like right, we were right. like, seriously, <laughs> you know, is this really happening right now? And then my dad had open heart surgery and life just happened. And now the second date isn't going to happen isn't going to work for us. So, um, anyway, we are having some guests this weekend to help us. Uh, we were alone the first time and that just wasn't great. So we're having some people visit this time. And I went to the store yesterday to buy all this stuff to cook for everyone and was looking in the wine aisle and it's my local grocery store. You know, you like when people start to like recognize you and you start to like get kind of familiar with the place and and uh the person who buys the wine for the grocery store is very invested in it he's very <laughs> just amazing he's a Kroger an expert, like, yeah it's a Kroger in East Asheville um you know and if you know his name's Chris okay so if you've been there you probably and shopped in the wine section you probably know him and anyway so I'm like going through he sees what I have in my hand he's like if you like that you're gonna like this. I love that he's the Kroger sommelier like yeah that's no amazing. his expertise is like beyond like I'm sorry I know like you know Green Hills Bellmead all that's supposed to be the cool place like when you go in there no one asks you to like helps you pick out wine so anyway Chris um picked out this Apothic Inferno it's amazing very affordable not the lowest price, but not the highest. And Afton and I both really love it. I wish I could remember some of the adjectives he used because he was very... Mahogany, <laughs> wood, cherry, <laughs> he, sage. He had a lot of words, um, but they convinced me, which doesn't take a lot with wine. And I came home with it, and it is like a million percent it's alcohol. Decadent. And it's really, really, really good. So shout out to Chris. Chris at Kroger. Know that you are a favorite grill, griddle sommelier. <laughs> and when we have swag, you will be one of the recipients. I just feel so grateful for people who, like, are really, like... Invested. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, and are able about... to just come up to you and just unabashedly be like, you need this wine. Like, yes. I don't have that I'm sales sold. Ability. I don't shop at the Eastland Kroger, but I, you've sold. I'm, you really I'm should go. Sold. Yeah, no, I'm you sold. Close. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What are you grateful? <sighs> wow. I don't. What am I grateful for? I am grateful for. Do do do. Anna, did <laughs> no, you I'm just point kidding. to yourself? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Actually, yes, I am grateful for Anna. I will. I will. This is an ode to you at the moment. When we, so just so y'all know, we, we, we love all of you, but we don't care who listens to this because (laughs) (laughs) it is a time that Anna and I get to see each other and we look forward to it. Like it is like, I know Anna, she'll, you know, she'll have days where she just wants to be in her PJs and not talk to anyone, but I'll like barge through the door and I'm like, hello. And then I go say hi to her nugs and there's like all this like hurricane energy, you know, whiplash through her house. Um, and, and I just, I, I really love this pod. And the whole reason the pod exists is because Anna and I really enjoy each other's company. We have 
excellent conversations that are both enlightening to both of us, um, are both enlightening to both of us, are enlightening to both of us. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly the, the red wine that Chris recommended is, uh, <laughs> wow, it's really, its effects are, are palpable. Um, so I am really grateful for you and you're just so thoughtful and you frame things in ways that, that make me think, and you've always done that. And it's been three years of just pod bliss. I can't believe it. Pod bliss. God, it's been three years. Wow. We haven't worked together in how long? Two long times. Yeah. Two and a half years. I spent my, two, my yeah, anniversary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two and a half years. Wow. We've maintained, maintained a friendship. friendship, which is funny. Cause I've just, you know, I've totally ghosted friends mostly, uh, mm-hmm. especially during this electoral cycle, but so, you know, even though Anna and I would like to become so famous that our hair and makeup is professionally done, we we really enjoy being together. And if this just ends up being grits and we're in our 35th year, <laughs> I, what does that look like? I don't know. We just, like, fly to each other to record a podcast. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. We go to, like, really expensive, like, when we're finally making big oh, money. yeah, like, girls trips oh. to record And then we podcast. only record. And then, and then oh, oh, by the way, oh, I forgot to mention my mom. For those of you wondering, Julian Bain has started her own podcast. Woo! Red State Blue Mom. You can follow it. Uh, I know that she's, she's a... She's a big uh, pull for our podcast, so we're sorry to lose her as she starts her own uh, adventure, but uh, I-, I will try to convince her to come back. I know it's going to be lofty. Wait, can we be guests on her podcast? No. I guess we can. Okay. She hasn't invited us, so Aww. I think it, the door is only one way right now. <laughs> <laughs> the door is only one way, but Red State, Blue Mom, I don't know if it's available on Apple, but it's definitely available on all your other platform so please check it out her her first episode and only episode right now uh is about women's suffrage and um yeah it's been it's been relevant so anyways thanks so much for listening and uh remember to follow us on instagram and twitter and please push out to your friends we're really grateful for everyone that listens um once again this is you know more a side project for anna for anna and my friendship uh but we're excited for anyone that listens and um Keep it gritty. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Keep it gritty. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our griddles and our family at the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the other podcasters in the network who are doing the Lord's work in the state of Tennessee. Find the good stuff at www.tmholler.com and be sure to subscribe and support the holler while you're there. Follow the holler to keep up with what's going on here in the state at the TN Holler on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow Grits at Grits Podcast. Keep it gritty. Bye.